Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Hi. We What's did up? it. We're, we did it. We're here. Happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day weekend. Happy West Indies Day in Brooklyn. Yeah. Happy yeah. West Indies Day. I don't know if today is technically the day or if there's this is just when they're celebrating it, but there's lots of I uh, mean like yeah, there's like a lot of uh, parades, parades and, and stuff. stuff. There was a parade at 1.30 in the morning last night that I saw going outside our apartment. Super fun time. Speaking of which. Speaking of which. What else did we do this weekend? This weekend we moved into our brand new beautiful apartment. Beautiful apartment. We're still in Brooklyn though. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> we're still in Brooklyn. And we're still here and we have just added the lovely Amanda to our Ugh, trio finally. of roommates. We are complete. Our trifecta. Trifecta of earth, earth signs. signs. Yes, you did it. Yay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, I didn't realize that all of our favorite colors were some form of green, which is really funny. Mine is emerald. What's yours? Mine is like a foresty green. And she said hers is like olive, olive green. Yeah. yeah. So. Oh, God. Earth signs. So predictable. We've already, <laughs> we've already said that we're probably driving our neighbors crazy because of all of our singing and talking and goofing around. But luckily, it's great. it seems like our apartments are fairly soundproof. Yeah, I think because, it'll be good. Because like, you, you don't really hear me when I'm like singing and doing whatever up in my room, do you? Um, If I'm out of my room, I do. Yeah. But in your room, you don't. Well, I'm not necessarily listening that hard, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, when I'm upstairs trying to call you guys, neither of you <laughs> respond, so I don't know if it's selective or what. <laughs> no. But regardless, it's been already a fabulous time. We haven't killed each other yet. It's so. been two nights and <laughs> we're two nights going and we're all strong. still alive. <laughs> we watched Pirates of the Caribbean last night. Everyone the second fell asleep one. Except for me. Listen, okay. It was a long day. These, this whole weekend has been so More busy. than just this weekend, like... Is something making noise? Okay. Big risers. Okay. <laughs> we discovered that my phone is playing on my speaker upstairs. The source of the music has been compromised, uh, or found. Has been found out and... Shut down. Shut it down. Shut it down. Okay. Well, new Girls reference there for... Maybe if Renee Wolf is listening here. Yeah. One of our who's to That's say. That's from New Girls? Yeah. I don't watch it New Girls. Down. It's just New Girl. One New Girl. Not not plural. <laughs> <laughs> A singular New Girl. <laughs> just one girl is new. Just Well, there's only one girl. It's like the whole point. Is yeah, that she, yeah. 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 Oh, um. what are we going to do with you? <laughs> uh, okay. Who's that girl? It's Marg. <laughs> oh, my gosh. God. Somebody stop us. Okay. Who let us have a podcast? Who let us feed people? You know um, who let us? <laughs> All of you listeners. And for that, we are very grateful. We love you. Thank you so much. For letting us be ourselves and gonna, for listening to us. Yes. We're going to get into it. Um, yeah. It's episode 24. 24. The podcast is almost as old as us in weeks as we are years. <laughs> Big deals. Um, and uh, as you may have heard on our Who's to Say episode this week, That's we right. have decided to take a little bit of a break. We've decided what might work best for our bonus segments is to do them in seasons. So we hope you have enjoyed. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed our summer season and um, we will be coming at you soon. We would love to get, we're, we're working on compiling new artists and new works for you and um think it would be work best in a format um where we can have some time in between to get all the works from you lovely people and then uh put out some seasons so uh just because we are not necessarily putting them out right now that does not mean we're not trying to record and produce and um get them together submissions so yeah we absolutely still need your submissions and love getting them so um please remember that you can send those to millennial Poets Society at gmail.com. Uh, you can find that email address on our uh, Instagram page if you search MPS underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, give us a follow while you're there mm-hmm. and then go ahead and um, click that contact or email button that's right under our bio and it'll pull up a blank email for you to just fill all your stuff in, copy and paste some of your work, whatever you want. Tell us about yourself. What did you do this weekend? Y'all should see the wow. hand movements that Marguerite is doing right I'm now. Doing, I'm trying like, not to hit the cord though, so I'm like, she's like, just, just like lots of 
Lots of it, like twisty, like things. ringing of the wrists, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and it's just so exciting. And I want your things, so give them to me. Um, <laughs> can I just have it? But just give it. Just give me. Just like give me. Just give it, it to me. Give me. Like, I just want it. I need it. Can I just? Okay. Can I just have it? I just want them. Just just give them to me. Just do it. I made it so easy for you. It's so easy. We've done all the work for you, essentially. All no. you have to do is write the thing, and send it. Or if it's already written. Just send it. Yeah, we really like old stuff that you're like, mm, do I really think this is something that they want? That's because the is. stuff we want. And like, we also especially. want new stuff that you just wrote down last night in like a fever dream or something. That's exactly and what I was thinking in a fever mm-hmm. dream. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, anyway, uh, hopefully you enjoyed la- this uh, week's episode. It was extra special. Mm-hmm. And um, we can't wait to get back to you with the next season of Who's to Say? Season 2. Yay! Um, yeah, so uh, with that said... It is episode 24. Oh, and, and we are also, I mean, we came out with an episode oh last gosh. week. We yeah. came out with an episode last week that we had recorded a while back, but this is the first one that we will have been recording since we're back from our technical difficulties. Yeah, so just it's wanted been to a put long in time. a note about that. Thank you all for hanging in there and for everyone who has listened to the ones that we just put out last week. We're so thankful that you're still with us oh and hanging in there. Um, hopefully we have resolved all of our issues. I mean, technologically, we have our own issues. There's a lot of therapy like... that's got to go on in order for all of us <laughs> to be resolved, but, but hopefully all little MacBook Pro is doing okay and she um, pets it <laughs> um i mean hey gotta be gentle oh. apparently um no. <laughs> so yes thank you all for hanging in there um hopefully we will not have any glitches like that anytime soon but you guys rock for um sticking with us sticking with us keeping up with us uh Anyway, it's episode 24. Yay, that means Mark goes first. That means I go first today, and I have someone um, that is a really cool person. I <laughs> We've had a busy bit of time, so I just found him earlier today, but I think he's a cool dude, and um, I found him, again, through... I love the little, like, collections things of that... Um, Ooh, I'm going to talk a lot about that. Oh, yeah? That yep. Poetry Foundation does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I was searching through today there's one section collection that i found that all of you should go go check out (laughs) all of you should go check out um hopefully it's still up there somewhere it should be uh on their page but it's collections poems about dogs and oh my god Uh, what it's so great um yeah there's a Uh, poem that i was trying to send to emily earlier that i'm gonna have to send to you um i will it'll be a little bonus for us afterward oh my god um but so yeah so i found this poem in a collection called like back to school poems or something like that and i was like intrigued especially because um i mean it's that time of year you're seeing it all over like social media and whatever it's like back to school stuff but also my mom's a teacher and so i was like oh that'd be cool to like find a little back to school poem shout out to mrs k shout out to her and she teaches English too, so thanks, mom, for uh, everything me about words, <laughs> and <laughs> for giving me life and also words and also everything. So, um, yeah. So uh, the the author that I'm going to talk about today is Yehuda Amichai. Um, what I, a wonderful name. I know it's a very cool name. I'm hoping I I'm doing the best to pronounce it. I listened to a couple different videos, so. Uh, I'm forgive me, but I'm I'm really trying my best. <laughs> um, we understand. Yeah. Uh, so he was born Ludwig Pfeiffer. Mm. Pfeiffer. Um, it's a German name. I think it's like Pfeiffer. Uh, Pfeiffer. On May third, nineteen twenty four, in Würzburg, Germany, uh, to an Orthodox Jewish family. Hmm. Uh, he, they emigrated, uh, he and his family emigrated to Palestine in 1936 when he was 12 years old and he later became a naturalized Israeli citizen. Amazing. Although German was his native language, he was also raised speaking Hebrew and he, um, spoke it fluent, fluently by the time they moved to Palestine. Uh, he served in the Jewish brigade of the British army in World War II, which I think is, it's so interesting to hear about these different brigades and sections of the army where it's like... Mm -hmm. The Native American, and, uh, well, yeah, the Native American, I was thinking um, African American and Jewish brigades and how they, like, had these different brigade, brigades for these specific, like, groups of people right. rather than just, like, everyone Mixing everybody doing in. it together. It's, it's, 
always interesting to me when I see those. Um, but so yeah, he served in the Jewish Brigade of the British Army in World War II and fought with the Israeli Defense Forces in 1948 in the Arab-Israeli War. Wow. After that time, he attended Hebrew University to study biblical texts and Hebrew literature. And then he taught in secondary schools and teachers seminars as well as Hebrew University and later at um, American institutions such as NYU, the University of California, Berkeley, and Yale. Hmm. Um, so he went from that to being sort of more in the um, academia, academic world and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, he's recognized as one of Israel's uh, finest poets and was accorded international recognition unprecedented unprecedented for a modern Hebrew poet, according to a New York Times magazine profile of Amichai. Um, translator Robert Alter has said that he has been remarked with he ha, uh, that it has been remarked with some justice that uh, Amichai is the most widely translated Hebrew poet since King David. What? Which, I mean, that's just crazy. But I didn't see any stats, but I, I don't know if there are specific stats. But he's like, I'm just going to put it out there and say that I think this dude is... is that's insane. This. Yeah. Uh, which, yeah, it's just crazy. Um, his imaginative, imaginative and accessible style has opened up Hebrew poetry to American and English readers in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Um, his two breakthrough volumes that introduced him to American readers were poems... Uh, published in 1969, and Selective Poems of Yehuda Amichai in 1971, both co-translated by Ted Hughes, who we mentioned in an earlier episode, he was the former husband of Sylvia Plath, and he's a little bit of a controversial character himself, Um, but he co-translated the Amichai's works and became a good friend and advocate of his work. Wow. Um, The rigors and horrors of uh, Amichai's service in the military inform his poetry, although he is never strictly ideological in his poetry, but he says himself in an interview with the Paris Review that uh, he says all poetry is political in his view. Uh, Specifically, he says, this is because real poems deal with a human response to reality and politics is a part of reality, history Hmm. in the making, he said. Even if a poet writes about sitting in a glass house drinking tea, it reflects politics, which is an interesting viewpoint. Um, It is an interesting viewpoint. I can agree. I mean, it depends. To me, it depends on what you're looking at in terms of politics. Because, like, someone, it it certainly speaks to, basically anything will speak to someone's cultural background and therefore their, like, the social structure maybe of where they're from and the, um, the things that they have access to because of where they live in the world, which then is affected by the politics of the world. And, like, it's all a whole big, like interconnected web of things I think I know, but then so I it's think like at about... some super maybe it's a distant connection but there is technically a connection to politics I know I just think of like author's intent mm-hmm. and I'm like if I'm writing a poem that's not that definitely has nothing to do with politics in my head I know that it's open to interpretation once I share it with people but I mean, like, does that really mean that the poem is then about politics if it's not something that I specifically, as the author, wrote it like that? I don't know. That's just something I think about Mm -hmm. a lot of times when when we're doing these, like, different, um, what are they called? When we analyze them and Uh analyze different poems and we, we give our own spin on things. And a lot of the time we don't know. Mm-hmm. what the actual author's intent was, but I just think it's interesting. Something to think yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. Um, his work is widely has widely been described as accessible, and his work has been translated, has uh, it translates seamless, seamlessly into many languages. Um, but Alter, uh, that translator that we spoke about earlier, um, he ha- ha- takes great pains to describe his work, uh, his style as something much more uh, complex in its native Hebrew. Mm. So he's saying that although it is fairly colloquial and can be easily translated and everything, there is still this like depth to it and, um, and, and many layers to it. Um, Alter noted in an article for Modern Hebrew Literature that Amichai's exploitation of indigenous stylistic resources is often connected with his sensitivity to the expressive sounds of the Hebrew words he uses and with his uh, inventive puns, which are sometimes uh, playful, sometimes dead serious, and often both at once. Hmm. But uh, what is most under, uh, untranslatable are the extraordinary elusive twists he gives to densely specific Hebrew terms and texts. 
Um, so although it can be easily translated and everything like that, he, I feel like, I think of it as like, he has these little nuggets that are specifically for that audience that like he is originally writing for. And it's like, they can, it can be translated and other people can still enjoy his work and get a lot of meaning out of it. But it's like, there are specific people that like will get a little something else from it. Right. um, Which is cool. Uh, during his time in the war, uh, Amihai's time fighting in the wars and everything like that, um, is when his interest in poetry grew, um, and he began reading authors such as Dylan Thomas, W.H. Auden, and T.S. Eliot, um, and according to some, his early, early works resemble those of Thomas's and Auden's, as well as a couple others, um, but uh, this guy, Alter, who I think he's written, I don't know that he's written a biography on him, but he wrote like an article on him for modern Hebrew literature. He wrote a profile on him for New York Times. Right. So um, definitely someone who has done a lot of research into him definitely and his works and everything like that. Yeah. So um, Alter says that Amihai's entire body of work speaks persuasively to his powers as an everyman, both of his, peop- both of his people and the world. Uh, reviewing the selected poetry of Yehuda Amichai, American poet Ed Hirsch uh, stated that Amichai is a representative man with unusual gifts who is telling his own story as, uh, who in telling his own story also relates the larger story of his people. Interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, overall, Amichai has published 11 volumes of poetry in Hebrew, um, two novels, and a book of short stories. Uh, his work has been translated into 40 different languages, probably over 40 at this point. I saw one article that said 37, but then Poetry Foundation said 40, so I'm sure it's continually being translated into more and more. Um, collections of his poetry available in English include Open, Closed, Open, published in 2000. Even A Fist Was Once an Open Palm with Fingers in 1989, which I just love the name of that. What an interesting name, And it's, it's something I would love to, um see like read that collection and see how it maybe because it sounds like it probably relates to maybe his time in the war and everything right, like that and it's right. really informed like we said earlier informed by his time in the wars mm-hmm. um and then another one is the great tranquility questions and answers published in 1983 wow. plus many more those are just some titles that intrigued me yeah um some awards uh in 1982 Abihai, uh sorry but i said that like through my nose <laughs> in 1982, Amihai received the Israel uh, Prize for Poetry and became a foreign honorary member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters in 1986. Gotta love and, the arts and letters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then also among other awards and notable things, um, he was a Nobel Prize nominee. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. And he lived in Jerusalem until his death on September 25th, 2000. Okay. So had a long life. Sounds like a very interesting life. Um, and yeah, so the, uh, the poem that I'm going to read today, it doesn't say what collection it was from. Um, oh, well actually I think it was, I don't know if it was written for the publication poetry, but that's where, that's what it's sourced as, um, from the poetry foundation. That's poetry foundations. Um, um, they're like like magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it is called The School Where I Studied and was translated by, um, Chana Block or Bloch. Bloch? I think, uh, it's Hana. Hana Block. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, so this is The School Where I Studied. I almost said lived. The School, the school Where I, I lived. lived. The School Where A I A story st- of one of my summers in college. <laughs> the School Where I Lived. Yes. It's or just the school year in college. No, I lived in a school for a oh, summer. Oh, you did. I'm not going to say where, but I did. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> if you don't know, well, now you know. Except you don't, because I'm not going <laughs> to talk about it. <laughs> okay. The school where I studied. Perfect. I passed by the school where I studied as a boy and said in my heart, here I learned certain things and didn't learn others. All my life I have loved in vain the things I didn't learn. I am filled with knowledge. I know all about the flowering of the tree of knowledge, the shape of its leaves, the function of its root system, its pests and parasites. I am an expert on the botany of good and evil. I am still studying it. I'll go on studying till the day I die. I stood near the school building and looked in. This is the room where we sat and learned. 
The windows of a classroom always open to the future, but in our innocence we thought it was only landscape we were seeing from the window. The schoolyard was narrow, paved with large stones. I remember the brief tumult of the two of us near the rickety steps, the tumult that was the beginning of a first great love. Now it outlives us, as if in a museum, like everything else in Jerusalem. Mm. So... I just really liked the the imagery of it and his yeah. you, and and describing the tree of knowledge and it's like <clears> you get to know the tree of knowledge but then you're also still constantly learning about it and changing well, and because and the roots of that tree are growing mm-hmm. constantly it's right. not something that's fixed in time yeah and and talking about the things you and I feel like it's something that everyone always talks about especially once they're out of school but the things you learn in school and the things you don't learn in right, school right and how you cherish the things that you don't learn in school that you can't really learn from like a, a syllabus or that sort of thing right and um and also I like I wonder who he's talking about uh like he's talking about his first great love and so who that person is and whatnot yeah. and and how it's so interesting how places like a specific landmark to think of it and think of everything that happened there around it or in it or whatever and how it outlives you and the things that you did there and other people had experiences there and and what other lives and things happened in that building that like you have so much memory with but it also relates to so many other people and what their view of that place is it's such an interesting thing to think about sometimes I like just sit here and think about how like crazy it is that we all have our own like lives (laughs) lives like <laughs> oh that's a that's a like a syndrome or something it's not a syndrome but like it's like a that's like a there's a, a word for that and yeah I, and to think about like I don't know just someone walking by in the street and being like well do they notice me and what does seeing me right. mean to them does it mean anything to them and like will they remember me and then when they think of me what are they thinking about and right. like it's just such yeah. a weird it's our thing. when we think about things like that it's like our ego is taking over because it's like you know, like when you think, oh my God, everybody's looking at me because I look stupid or something. Yeah. Like, literally nobody cares about you, mm-hmm. but you, I mean, you know, <laughs> but you, but like, you have to, but our brains are wired in yeah. such a way that it's like, I'm the most important thing because I'm constantly talking and, and well, reevaluating also, yeah, myself. Well, but also, yeah, just contemplating like, this person may be important to me, but then how do they, am I really, do I mean anything to them? Like, how do I fit into their life story? And I like, think about that with baristas a lot because I've now done both sides of it Mm -hmm. and I I've had customers come up to me and know exactly who I am yeah and I'm apparently their barista every day or whatever and I'll be like oh sorry yeah who are you like and I feel bad because I know that to them I'm at least like some like thing that they look forward to or that they like know in their life Mm -hmm. and to me they're just another face yeah and so I do think I did think about that a lot that's true see to me yeah I'm consistently surprised when like anyone remembers my name and remembers yeah. who I am yeah consistently I'm like why would you remember me like what what reason do you have so to- special because <laughs> you're I'm just amazing always- but I mean it's also I mean I guess in some ways it's kind of nice because then it's always a pleasant surprise when someone re- remembers you yeah but I'm also just constantly like yeah why would you well our neighbor <laughs> today one of our neighbors stopped by one of our brand new our neighbors. New neighbors I hope you're listening <laughs> <laughs> listen to our podcast by the way, post it on the door. <laughs> but one of our new neighbors stopped by and introduced himself to the two of you. Yeah, but Amanda he had, and I'm. He had already met me yeah. a couple days ago, and he was like, "Oh, I know you. You're Emily." And I was like, oh, "Yes, I am." <laughs> and I don't remember your name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but it's okay. We it's, we learned it. Yeah, it's just such an interesting thing to think about, and um, and. It is, it is really cool. I mean, when you think about especially when you think of it in terms of a place or yeah. like a building or structure right. or something. Um, and like all the things that happened there and like... And how everybody that you went to high school with, and just as an example, yeah. had a different high school experience than you. Exactly. And I, because I think about it sometimes where I would be like, you know, I'll talk to some of my old friends from high school and be like, God, I hated high school, right guys? And they're like... I mean, it was pretty good. Like, nothing can't complain. People right. that went to the same school as me at the same time. It's just, like, they had mm-hmm. such a different experience. Oh, yeah. And I'm constantly... I mean, I go through the same thing with, like, college and everything. Yeah. yeah. And I'm constantly wondering, like, is it my fault that that experience was worse for me or something? Or 
or did I, you know, what it's is, just if the I thought that they were that you had and, and well, the right. way that you went through life yeah. and like, were they, but you know, when you think about people who were like intertwined with your yeah, life right, and right, you're like, right. I did everything with you. How did you get this whole other experience, experience. from me? Mm-hmm. But I mean, it, sometimes it just takes like one other friendship or one right. big experience, maybe in your high school time, but well, out like of are, high school. Yeah, there are I mean? so many other factors in terms of like their their family and right. where they live and what sort of like circumstances economic in their status yeah. that they're able to be at. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, it can be so vastly different. It's right. mind-boggling sometimes and I just have to like crawl into a ball and go to sleep. <laughs> but it is really it is really good though yeah. that you're able to acknowledge those kind of differences yeah. and see that Oh, okay. So, like, my my pri- privilege mm-hmm. being a white woman yeah. in this life is going to automatically make things a lot easier for me mm-hmm. than Have somebody a else. Very different experience, right? From exactly. Else. Yeah. So, absolutely. you know, it's good that you can recognize that. Yeah. And um, that's half the battle. Mm-hmm. If more people did, we'd be so much better off. Yeah. Um. That's a great poem, though, and it really yeah, made you think. So I didn't that's expect exciting. to have that kind of a discussion <laughs> with it, but I love yeah, it. I, it's cool. But um, yeah, it's just a really, I, it's a really lovely poem and a really interesting way to sort of look back and remember your time. It's very a soft time in your yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that was Yehuda Amihai. Uh, the school where I studied, and um, happy back to school if you're going back to school as a student it's or about a teacher, that time. or yeah. have kids who are going to school, or my sister what started have school. You. Yeah, she's a, now a she's professor, a, an yeah. assistant professor, but she's a professor. She's a teacher. She's a professor. She is. Klein. I know, Doctor Professor Doctor Professor Klein. Professor Doctor Klein. Professor Doctor. Doctor Professor. It's a pretty cool gig she's got so and they're back to school already in college so yeah yeah a lot of people are back to school in college some different states go back to school at very different times like in New York they're not back to school yet but they will be soon but I know like some places in the south I think are already back it has to do with the whole school system and school calendars based off of agriculture yeah Yeah, off of when we were more of an agricultural society and so in the summer you needed people to work the fields and all that fun stuff. Anyway, um, I think it's time for a, a quick little break. A quick break. Quick break. A quick, quick, quick break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Bye. 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 We'll be back. <laughs> We're back from our quick break. Our quick break <laughs> is over, and um, it's my turn now. Emily's turn. Yes. Yay. Emily's corner. Emily's corner. Sitting in Emily's room. And this is we my are theme in song. Emily's room. It's so yeah. nice, and like my room's a mess right now still because. Well, I had like an almost a whole extra day. Yeah. So it's okay. You'll, yours will get there. Yeah. You <laughs> you have more natural light than I do. I mean, if you want to like, <laughs> we're gonna be fine. <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. Yeah. I just need to get my stuff in places. Places and stuff, stuff and things, yeah. things and stuff, things and stuff. And then when we talk about yeah, things and stuff, and stuff. that's it's our, our new, new store. Uh, our new, just like it's a store. It's a store. We sell like things and stuff. Things and stuff. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now that you can all steal our uh, excellent. TM 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 TM. <laughs> I'm also hashtagging with my finger. Right you now. did. That's different. It's a different thing. No one can steal it. TM. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go ahead. Um, so, um, I wanted to do something kind of different for this new, starting a new season with us, starting a new life in my new apartment. I wanted to do a new segment. So like before I was doing all LGBTQ poets, um, and now I want to start a segment on poetry and feminism. So that's what I'm going to do. Oh my God. (laughs) What is that? Like a very large truck, I think just went by. Something was just banging. It's fine. Maybe it was the truck with all the bass drums and cymbals and stuff in it for the <laughs> from the parade that went by. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. No, okay, what, what would a truck full of drums sound like? It's like do 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 do. I've been feeling. Get some Phil Collins up in here. Yes, thank you. Okay. Okay. So you're starting a new segment. I'm starting a new segment. Poetry and feminism. Wonderful. It's my goal that um, 
I will take you guys, including you, Marguerite, mm. through the four waves of feminism over the next four weeks. Yeah. Um, I'll be choosing at least one, but mostly two, like this week. Um, two poets from each wave to help showcase how poetry has helped women band together and demand change for hundreds of years. Amazing. So this week, um, I'm going to focus on the predecessors of feminism. Okay. Um, so this would be more of like those speaking out all alone before any official movement had begun. Right, before the word feminism and even what it was, was a titled. Thing. Yeah. yeah. This is, we're talking like 16, 1700s. Like awesome. way back in the day. But the cool thing is, is that like the first wave doesn't start that much later. Did you just burp really big? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how loud it'll be on the mic. I mean, I, I didn't burped. hear it. I looked I over to, like, and you were like, <laughs> you were like, oh, <laughs> like, like, an, oh my goodness, my stars. <laughs> like, that's like, my, oh, my Lanta. <laughs> my Lanta. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, hopefully y'all didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. But yeah, so this week we're doing, I'm doing. Uh, predecessors to feminism. Mm-hmm. So I have two incredible women for you. Um, the first one is Anne Bradstreet. Now, I had never heard of Anne Bradstreet before, yeah. but I started doing this uh, research. And at the time I was doing the research, I was reading a book called The Basic Eight, which if anybody knows, it's by, I think his name is David Handler. I'm going to regret that. It's Lemony Snicket. Is it in your thing? No, um, it's, uh, I, no, I don't have the book. Um, it's, um, it was an ebook. Did you break everything in my room? No, it's just went inside your little Okay. Thing. Um, but so at the time I was reading The Basic Eight, which is a book by the guy who is Lemony Snicket, whose mm-hmm. name, whose real name I can't remember. Okay. Um, and it was like one of the first novels he wrote in like the nineties and, um, one of the, the, the main character, the uh, the voice, what are they called? The narrators. narrator. <laughs> the narrator of the, the book. Voice. <laughs> the voice of the book. Dude, the voice in my head? What's that called? <laughs> it's, the, you know. Get out <laughs> the narrator of the book. Me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, the narrator of the book, her, whoever it is, um, she talks about her senior year English class studying Bradstreet. And I was doing my research, and then I was reading this book, and, like, yeah. they just kept saying, Anne Bradstreet, Anne Bradstreet. And I was like, wait a minute. This is the same. What is the chance? Like, what are the yeah. odds that I would be researching her and also reading about her? That's crazy. Like, in this other. It was right. Just, it was weird. So cool. So, anyway, Anne Bradstreet. <clears throat> she was the first woman to be recognized as an accomplished New World poet and the first writer in England's North American colonies to be published. Wow. So she's a big fucking deal. Oh, yeah. Um, she was born March 20th, 1612, same day as my dad, but many years before, obviously. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> wow, um, your dad looks so good for 400. <laughs> <laughs> oh, didn't I tell you he's Nicholas Flamel? <laughs> I'm yes, the yes, stone. stone. Yes, the he philosopher's does. stone. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, born March 20th, 1612. So that's the time period we're working with here. Got um, it. To a wealthy family in Northampton, England. She was described as an educated English woman, a loving wife, devoted mother, empress consort of Massachusetts, a questing Puritan, and sensitive poet. Wow. So. She was up she there. Was, uh, she was an accomplished lady. Accomplished lady born into... An accomplished... A wealthy, well-to-do family. Yeah, and to a very specific, yeah. Mm -hmm. Due to her family's position, Bradstreet grew up in a cultured circumstance and was a well-educated woman for her time, like I said. She was too... There's just like a motorcade going by, so I thought we might... We can just wait for this to pass. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Is too shall pass. Is too shall pass. You shall not pass. <laughs> Why do we not have any of the Lord of the Rings on DVD? Oh God, they're probably they have to be on some streaming service. Are like, they? Like they have to I have be. Never, like, I've never watched them in so long. Or, um, Definitely not HBO. I would have watched them by now. Amazon Prime. We might have to rent them. 
quick research break. <laughs> but we can rent it from from YouTube for three ninety nine. Yeah. In case any of you wanted to know. Okay. okay. Sorry, we took a quick break <laughs> for the motorcade driving by outside. And we're back. Like I was saying, she grew up in cultured circumstances and was a well-educated woman of her time. She was tutored in history, several languages, and literature. Mm-hmm. And that, to them, in 16-something, was a well-rounded woman. So, I mean, I mean it was a lot better off than a lot, a lot of other women. Right. She married her husband at just 16 years old. Yikes. She was 18 years old when she first arrived in America. She and her husband, Simon Bradstreet, were some of the first settlers in the city of the hill, Boston, Massachusetts. Do we know how old her husband was when she got married to him? Um, older. Definitely older. Yeah. I don't know exactly how old. It would just be nice to know that he's maybe not like 50 years older. It's quite possible that he was like in his 20s. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. We can hope. In 1632, <laughs> yeah. she had her first child, Samuel. Not to be confused with the husband, Simon. Okay. Simon and Garfunkel. Yes, is the <laughs> husband. Samuel is the child. Okay. Despite her poor health, Anne Bradstreet would have eight children. Wow. Because that is what kind of time they lived in. Both her father and her husband were instrumental in founding Harvard University in 1636. Big deal. Wow. Specifically university and not college. Yep. Harvard University in 1636. And, which also, I was doing this research and I was like, hold on. Harvard was not around in 1636. There's no way. Yeah. I was like, that's not even a year when people were around. It just seems not so, a real year. It didn't seem like a real year. I was like, 1612, that's like a joke year. Like, you say that when you're like, back in the old days, you know, like. In just, the 1600s. Right, like, that's a joke. Yeah, no. But people were alive and thriving, in case you were wondering. And going to Harvard. Well, at least creating Harvard. <laughs> well, um, people went to it, I would hope. Yeah. <laughs> we should, one can only hope. So she, so yeah, so she was a very well-read woman, and her personal library of books was said to have been over nine thousand volumes. Oh my god! We just There's moved. no way she read all that. <laughs> we just moved, like we just said, and uh, we tried to pare our books down. And I thought I had a lot when I had like thirty or something mm-hmm. like that. Jesus, nine thousand volumes. Mm. But when you think about it, she probably has read nine thousand books in her lifetime because. She's, that's all she had to do. Like, that's all she had to do. She studied literature. Yeah. You know? And, and history. Have, like, and, and whatever. Right. That was their only um, way to get knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> get knowledge. Oh, God, I'm doing so well. <laughs> um, okay, so her personal library of over 9,000 volumes, although, sadly, many of those were destroyed when her home burned down. Oh, no. So a lot of them are gone now. Mm. Um, Bradstreet used this experience of her home burning down to write a poem titled upon the burning out oh upon the burning of out uh, out isn't supposed to be there upon the burning of july 10th 1666 cool super clever at naming things back then is my note Mm. to myself (laughs) (laughs) good job Um, she did a good she did a good yes when she was just starting out as a writer she explored the form of epic poems Mm. Much was based on observation of the world around her, focusing heavily on domestic and religious themes. Despite the traditional attitude toward women of this time, she clearly valued knowledge and intellect. She was considered a free thinker, and some considered her an early feminist, unlike the more radical Anne Hutchinson. I don't know if you guys know Anne Hutchinson, but she was also considered a feminist of the time, um, but much more radical Much more radical in her... Um, free thinking ideals, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bradstreet's feminism does not reflect these, that, that view. It was much more subdued. Um, like the mentality. Yeah. The mentality of it was very much like, well, I'm just saying what I think. And it was softer and more palatable for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it didn't reflect what they call anato- oh, antinomian views. Okay. Antinomian is any view which rejects laws or legalism and is against moral, religious, or social norms, or is least considered to do so. So, um, a lot of Anne Bradstreet's work is 
very focused in the Puritan belief and like what makes a good Puritan woman Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, things like that. So So it still fit within a specific like societal structure. Exactly. So yes, like I said, it was much more palatable to her, to her readers. Yeah. Um, Readers of her work also considered her a complementarian which is a theological view in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that men and women have different but complementary roles and responsibilities in marriage, family life, religious leadership, and elsewhere. Okay. So that was something she believed in and she wrote about. Mm-hmm. In 1647, Bradstreet's brother-in-law, Reverend John Woodbridge, sailed to England carrying her manuscript of poetry. She found out that he had plans to publish it, and when she discovered this, she wrote him a letter But there wasn't much she could do about it as a female poet. It was important for her to downplay her ambitions as an author. So she had written to him being like, oh my god, don't, stop, Mm -hmm. how dare you? Right. Oh no, like Mm -hmm. shucks. (laughs) Um, So yeah, but she was also like, oh wait, crap, this is really cool. But also like, oh god, am I going to ruin myself? Um, so she was downplaying her ambitions as an author. Um, otherwise she would have been criticized for being unwomanly. Mm. Dumb. Mm-hmm. Luckily, her brother-in-law did publish it because she became the first woman poet published in the new world when her book, The Tenth Muse Lately Sprung Up in America, was published in 1650. Like I said, very good at naming things back then. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> the publication was apparently meant to show that godly and educated women could elevate their positions as wife and mother without necessarily placing themselves in competition with men. This was the belief of John Woodbridge and her husband at the time. So Bradstreet's husband was like super into this. He was mm-hmm. like, yes, get yourself published. You're like they had a, a from what I can tell a pretty great marriage mm-hmm. like is all things considered you know right. they um they supported each other at least he supported her in her writing which was unheard of right and um he was really like yes like we can use your writing to show people that women aren't doing this out of spite mm, right. for men they're doing it just because they want to and like that it's not going to affect your manhood to let them Think. Think and do things. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So that was pretty cool of him. Mm -hmm. Um, Many people disagreed with this line of thought, and Anne Bradstreet endured a lot of gender bias because of it. Hmm. So just a little backstory on the role of women in Puritan society. Marriage played a very large role in the lives of Puritan women. In Bradstreet's poem, To My Dear and Loving Husband, she reveals that she feels she is one with her husband. The Puritans believe that since marriage was ordained by God then it is a gift from God. Though her poet, Through her poetry, she explored her worries of what would happen to her husband and children if she were to die first. And it's a lot of very endearing, like, what, what will God have in, in store for them? What will they do without me in, like, a not super, like, selfish way? Okay. Um, some of her poems praised her husband, Uh, until how she truly loves him and misses him when he's away from their family. Mm -hmm. Um, The primary role of women in the Puritan society was to take care of children. So many of Bradstreet's poems were dedicated to her children, and in them she shows a deep love and appreciation for each child, born and unborn, as gifts from God. Much of her poetry is dedicated to members of her family in this way. By understanding Bradstreet's intended audience, historians could get an idea of what life might have been like for a Puritan woman. So they studied a lot of her writing to help piece together like what life would have been like back then. For example, it was a huge risk for her brother-in-law to publish her poetry. Bradstreet was a righteous woman and her poetry was not written to be read by anyone other than those she specifically referenced in them. So like the one to my dear and loving husband was for her husband. Mm-hmm. Like, she didn't mean for these things to get published. Yeah. Um, throughout her life, she was concerned with the issues of sin and redep- redemption, physical and emotional frailty, death and immortality, her constant struggle between love of her world and the beauty around her and her desire for eternal life and happiness with God was present in nearly every poem she wrote but specifically in her work Contemplations, a late poem that many critics consider her best. 
The role of women is a common subject found in Bradstreet's poems, which is why most people think of her as a precursor to early feminism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Living in a Puritan society, she did not approve of the typical stereotype that women were inferior to men during the 1600s. In her poem, In Honor of That High and Mighty Princess Queen Elizabeth of Happy Memory, (laughs) Jesus Christ, (laughs) she questioned this belief, saying, Now say, have women worth... Or have they none? Or had they some, but with our queen is gone? Nay, masculines, you have thus taxed us long, but she, though dead, will vindicate our wrong. Let such as say our sex is void of reason. No, tis a slander now, but once was treason. Hmm. It's a pretty cool quote. Mm-hmm. Okay, so her poem that I want to read for you guys is um, called The Author to Her Book. And it is a poem she wrote in response to hearing that her book was published, mm-hmm. sort of like without her knowing. Yeah. Um, and it's actually pretty cute, so I'll read it to you. Once the siren is done. Yes. Okay. The author to her book. Thou ill-formed offspring of my feeble brain, who after birth didst by my side remain, till snatched from thence by friends less wise than true, who thee abroad exposed in public view, made thee in rags halting to the press of to trudge, where errors were not lessened, all may judge. At thy return my blushing was not small, my rambling brat in print should mother call, I cast thee by as one unfit for light. Thy visage was so irksome in my sight. Yet being mine own, at length affection would, thy blemishes amend, if so I could. I washed thy face, but more defects I saw, and rubbing off a spot still made a flaw. I stretched thy joints to make thee even feet, yet still thou runst more hobbling than is meet. In better dress to trim thee was my mind, but not save homespun cloth in the house I find. In this array mongst vulgars may thou roam, in crickets' hands beware thou dost not come, and take thy way where yet thou art not known. If for thy father asked, say thou hast none, and for my mother, she alas is poor, which caused her thus to send thee out the door." (laughs) it's just like okay so it's kind of difficult and it's heady old english you know right but coming from our theater background i think i kind of understand what's going on yeah we're used to reading stuff like this Mm -hmm. um but so i think it's just such a cute way for her to be like humble but also like i'm really excited that this happens this is is really cool but you know i just felt like you could really sense her excitement and then also Mm -hmm. her like Oh my god. Like I can yeah. see the emotion on her face. Right. When she's writing. Yeah, this, one you know? and her talking about how like no one else was supposed to read it and now it's like open to the judgment of all these people. Right. Exactly. And like these are sounds like poems that were like deeply personal to her and yeah. like and whatnot. So yeah, it's sort of like this poem talks about that sort of inner inner turmoil that she's going through where right. it's like excitement mm-hmm. about being published, especially in a time when women are not published, but then also being like Oh my god, everyone's reading my personal things. It's like a journal, sort of. Right, exactly. And I think, yeah, exactly. And I think it was just such a a good one to to show what sort of stuff she was doing and how she had to write this almost, I mean, maybe she didn't have to, but in my head she had to write this because as like an answer to being published so that people wouldn't think she was being unwomanly and, you know, thinking too much of herself. She sort of had to be this downplayed underdog that was like taken advantage of in order to be accepted in society. Yeah. Which is awful, but, you know, she really paved the way for females and and writers in America in general. So Mm -hmm. it's a big deal. Very cool. So that is Anne Bradstreet. Awesome. You go, girl. Yes, you go, girl. Um, My next poet is Charlotte Smith. She is an English romantic poet and novelist born May 4th, 1749. So we've jumped forward in time now. Mm-hmm. The oldest child of well-to-do Nicholas Turner and Anna Towers, she received the typical education for a girl in a wealthy family during the late 18th century. Are you sensing a theme here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
When Smith was young, her mother died, most likely from complications with childbirth with Smith's younger sister, Catherine. Her childhood was also shaped by her father's reckless spending. Mm. So her dad was like a busy businessman or whatever, mm-hmm. but then an avid gambler. And right, just... like they had money, but he was squandering it. Yeah, exactly. So she was primarily raised by her mother's sister, Lucy Towers, because her father traveled a lot and would rarely be home. Yeah. When she was 12 years old, Smith left school and entered society, which is so dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, Entering society, if you don't know, basically means that she's finally ready to bear children and is able to be wed off for marriage. Wed, yeah, wed. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So that means she's done being in school because now her body is ready to fulfill its real purpose. Anyway. Her father's reckless spending sent the family into economic distress, causing Charlotte to marry early. Mm. So, in a marriage that she later described as prostitution, she was given by her father to a violent man at the age 15. Oh, God. Charlotte and her new husband, Benjamin Smith, had 12 children together. Ugh. 12. Many of them didn't live long, and only six survived her. Oh, wow. Married life was miserable for her, to say the least. She hated where she lived. Her husband was violent and unfaithful, and her mother-in-law was a constant menace. Only her father-in-law, Richard, appreciated her writing abilities at all, though he only wanted to use them to further his business interests. Mm -hmm. So even that wasn't that great. Right. Her in-laws were slave owners, and though Charlotte later argued against slavery... She did benefit from the income of a slave and slave labor of Richard Smith's plantations. Worried that his son, um, her, her her husband, would carry on his foolish and irresponsible ways, Richard Smith willed the majority of the property that he had to Charlotte's children. The inheritance, originally worth nearly thirty six thousand pounds, was tied up in court after his death in 1776 for almost 40 years. Oh, my God. Charlotte and her children saw very little of this money. In fact, Benjamin, Charlotte's husband, illegally spent about a third of it and ended up in King's Bench Prison in 1783. Oh, dear Lord. Charlotte and her children moved into the debtor's prison with Richard, and it was Mm. there she wrote and published her first work, Elegiac? 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 Elegiac, I think, sonnets in 1784. It achieved instant success, though, thank goodness, and paid for the release, their release from the prison. Mm. These sonnets helped to initiate a revival of the form and granted an aura of respectability to her later novels. So, fuck yeah, Charlotte. Yeah. Way to go. Do the damn thing. Yeah. After a pattern of Benjamin running from those he owed money and Charlotte bailing him out, the couple moved to France, where Smith began translating works from French to English. In April of 1787, after 22 years of unhappy marriage, mm-hmm. Smith finally left Benjamin. Right on, girl. Thank God. However, when she'd left him, she didn't secure a legal agreement that would protect her profits. He mm-hmm. would have access to them under English laws at all times. Oh, God. Smith made every effort to earn enough money to retain her family's genteel status, she claimed the position of gentlewoman, signing her books Charlotte Smith of Bingnor Park. Which Bingnor. is not I mean, probably just like a place she maybe lived. Yeah. Or like a town, but right. she claimed the position of gentlewoman for herself so that people would find her more esteemed. Mm-hmm. All of her works were published under her own name, which was a daring decision for a yeah. woman at the time. Sarah Zimmerman for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography said Charlotte prized her verse for the role it gave her as a private woman whose sorrows were submitted only reluctantly to the public. She loved poetry, but began writing more novels around the time of her separation in order to beef up her income. In 1791, Smith became involved with English radicals while living in Brighton. She supported the French Revolution and its Republican principles. Charlotte Smith suffered from rheumatoid arthritis, which made it increasingly painful for her to write. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. But by the end of her life, it left her nearly paralyzed. Wow. So it was quite a bad disease that she had. Mm -hmm. On February 23rd, 1806, her husband Benjamin died in a debtor's prison, and Smith finally received some of the inheritance money that that he owed. 
that he owed her, Mm -hmm. but she was too ill to do anything with it. Yeah. She died a few months later in October of 1806. Smith's novels and poems were read and critiqued by her friends, who were also writers, and from other famous writers she received praise but also criticism. Jane Austen, for example, though she ridiculed Smith's novels, actually borrowed plot, characters, and incident from them. Hey. So... Watch it, Jane. Right. (laughs) You're welcome. Right. Stuart Curran, the editor of Smith's Poems, has written that she is, quote, the first poet in England whom, in retrospect, we would call romantic. She helped shape the patterns of thought and conventions of style for the period. Which is pretty freaking cool. Yeah. She inspired popular romantic poets of the time, including William Wordsworth. Hey. And John Keats. Wow. So... We owe a lot of, like, debt to her. Like, she, yeah, yeah, she brought us a lot of really beautiful stuff, Mm -hmm. including her own work. Right. So some selected works by Charlotte Smith include Elegic Sonnets, 1784, The Emigrants, 1793, Beachy Head and Other Poems, 1807. Mm -hmm. And she also wrote many novels, including Emmeline or The Orphan of the Castle, The Old Manor House, The Wanderings of Warwick, which I had heard of before, Mm -hmm. and The Young Philosopher. Hmm. Um, And that's really all I wanted to say about her, but just know that she was also part of that uh, precursor to feminism. Right. So this poem especially, I think, is really interesting. Um, It's a sonnet, and it is titled, Sonnet. On being cautioned against walking on a headland overlooking the sea because it was frequented by a lunatic. I feel like I've heard of this. Really? I, saw, I may have read this at some point when I was looking for something. That's really funny. That sounds... It's, it's oddly It's not familiar. one that you would like, forget. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, so we're going to read it. Is there a solitary wretch who hies to the tall cliff with starting pace or slow... And measuring views with wild and hollow eyes its distance from the waves that chide below, who, as the sea-born gale with frequent sighs, chills his cold bed upon the mountain turf, with hoarse, half-uttered lamentations lies, murmuring responses to the dashing surf? In moody sadness on the giddy brink, I see him more with envy than with fear. He has no nice felicities that shrink from giant horrors, wildly wandering here. He seems, uncursed with reason, not to know the depth or the duration of his woe. Hmm. So she's, I think it's really interesting because I'm sure it's coming from a place where, so she was cautioned, most likely, simply as a woman, to against walking on this this headland overlooking the sea because mm-hmm. it was frequented by a lunatic. Right. But in this po- in this sonnet you can kind of see that she's almost sympathetic to the to the quote unquote lunatic. Right. Um and and really almost envying him mm-hmm. of his solitude and his freedom mm-hmm. and his ability to go wherever he wants to go right. and people can't touch him, you know? Right. And I can imagine as a woman, especially in that time, like those are things that you would long for and, and sort of daydream about and right. wonder about. Yeah. Exactly. So that was that was just what I got from that. And mm-hmm. I mean it was it's a simple enough sonnet, but I think it really does bring forward that sort of like I don't know like the rumblings of early feminism yeah you know that that somebody wrote down that that a woman was not satisfied with her role in society mm-hmm. and that was really big back then oh yeah it's really big now let's be Especially honest to write it down and then publish it for the public to read right under her own name mm-hmm. yeah it was big with an awful husband yeah like we, and like, was yeah. just, she was but people who like successful. Not to say her friends didn't, but like her husband and her family didn't support her in that. Right. Like her friends uh, after her death, uh, like read through all of her novels and like mm-hmm. were the ones who like were like, oh my god, she was so good and like right, look at but all like, this while stuff. She was but alive, yeah. They were quiet because it was too Risky radical, and, like whatever. Yeah. yeah. 
Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I can't wait for the next three um, three parts. Yeah, so get cool. ready for the first wave next uh, next week. Very cool. Love it. Yeah, so that's all we've got for you this week. But we want to say a special thank you and a special shout out for Zach Adkins for our intro and outro music. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And as always, you can follow the link in the show notes below to our support link where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month. Dollar menu donations. And that little bit goes such a long way with us. Mm -hmm. Truly, we cannot... Thank you all enough for those yes. who have donated. Um, it gives us better access to equipment, uh, better equipment, mm -hmm. um, potentially to a new recording space. Mm -hmm. Even though we'll see how the acoustics sound in this new place, but yeah, we'll see. Can I still mean, definitely hear the sounds of Brooklyn, I think. But it would be nice <laughs> to have a soundproof room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and also could potentially go toward helping us find somebody to edit the podcast for us so that dear old Marguerite does not have to stay up until 3 a.m. the night before yeah. we publish. So <laughs> that would be nice. Um, let's give Marguerite a break and donate that 99 cents a month. <laughs> um, we really appreciate it for those who have again. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And as always, you can uh, rate and review this episode wherever you are listening, but especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot. Um, thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.